Second Peter chapter 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow this sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and to keep the unrighteous under judgment, under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage of their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, when I was in high school, I had a teacher, and I, I loved this teacher. Most students loved this teacher, and the reason that Students loved the teacher was because she didn't require us to do basically any work. Uh, she would teach for a few minutes, and then she would say, "Okay, that's all I got for today. Whatever you guys want to do, you can do." Uh, and then very often she would say, uh, "Friday is going to be a fiesta, la fiesta. So if you want to bring in food, you can bring in food. We'll watch some Spanish movies." And we'll just have a great time. So I loved this class a lot. Uh, but after a while, uh, that teacher didn't work out. Uh, she got fired. It, wasn't, it was a couple months before she got fired. We enjoyed those couple months. But then it was, a, it was a hard adjustment because a new teacher came, and she was actually qualified to teach students and teach Spanish. 
And she, like, had tests and homework, and, like, she taught for the whole class. It was a very big adjustment for us. Now, for me, I didn't care that we had a poor teacher, because I just, I didn't care about learning Spanish. I just wanted to hang out and have fiestas. But imagine if I was a student that really wanted to learn Spanish. If I was going to go overseas on a missions trip, and I really wanted to learn. And each day I came with a pen and paper, and I did all of all of my homework, anything that was required of me, and yet I wasn't learning anything. You know, and then a couple of months go by, and the teacher's gone, and you kind of don't know anything about Spanish. Imagine you feel kind of empty. And uh, when teaching is incomplete or false, it leaves us feeling empty. And this passage that we're looking at today talks about false teachers. There's a flower that's called the corpse flower. It's one of the rarest flowers in the world. And what's interesting about the corpse flower is, just like it sounds, it gives off gases that smell literally like a corpse. It also is capable of adjusting the, its temperature to get up to about 98 degrees to simulate the smell and the look of rotten flesh. And so what this flower does is, the reason it does that is because that attracts bugs inside. It attracts beetles and flies inside. But what's interesting about this flower compared to other flowers is, for most flowers, when they lure uh, insects in, what they find is they'll find uh, nectar inside. And in response, they'll take the pollen and carry it around with them. But with a corpse flower, they go in and they find nothing. There's nothing there for them. There's no nectar, no sustenance. And that's what happens when we buy into false teaching. We're left feeling empty. Left with nothing. And the truth is, we tend to be lured towards falsehood rather than truth. Uh, researchers at MIT did a study of 126,000 news stories uh, from Twitter from 2006 to 2017. And they discovered that false stories on Twitter were 70% more, uh, more likely to be shared and retweeted, retweeted than true ones. False ones, 70% more likely to be retweeted than true stories. The researchers concluded this. Falsehood diffused significantly farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in all categories. We have a tendency to gravitate towards falsehood rather than towards truth. And when we do so, we end up empty. And so in this passage, Peter says that these false teachers and their false teaching are waterless springs. You have the image of a person in the desert. You know, you think of someone who's really thirsty uh, and they're in a drought and they see a spring. And they go over this spring and they reach down with a bucket thinking that they're going to have a nice glass of refreshing water. And they find that there's nothing there. It's a waterless spring. That's what false teaching is. We live in an age of an information explosion. Just a short time ago, 25, 30 years ago, if you needed to know how to do something, uh, you would either look it up in a book, go to the library, or you would contact somebody who knew what they were doing, uh, who could teach you how to do it. Then sometime after that, we had the personal computer. You know, I remember in 
uh, grade school, we had these new computers, and I thought it was so cool that they had encyclopedias on them. And you could look up articles. You know, and then in 2007, it's shifted over to the smartphone. That it shifted over to being able to access the Internet and basically the answer to any question that you'd ever think of within a matter of seconds. Back in 2010, the former CEO of Google made this statement. He said, every two, two days now, we create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization up until 2003. Every two days, they, you create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization up until 2003. Now, that was eight years ago, and I'm sure the growth rate has even accelerated since then. Since then. And we have an access to a lot of information, but we also have a lot of access to bad information. And this is true for spiritual information as well. We have the ability to go online today and listen to hundreds and thousands of very well-written uh, sermons, uh, sermons that are creative, that are easy to listen to. And we have uh, books that we can order on Amazon, have it to us in two days that are just treasures of truth, where we can learn so much. We can even download them on our devices and listen, to, you know, read them instantly. So we have all that information, but there's also a lot of bad information out there. With the good comes the bad. And as Christians, we need to sort through the good and the bad. We can't just unthinkingly just digest everything that we hear as if it's truth. And so in this passage, Peter gives us five characteristics of false teachers. Five things that we need to be wary of as we are studying the Word of God and listening to those around us. The first characteristics of, characteristic of false teachers is, is that they tend to focus on things other than Jesus. Peter says that the false teachers tend that they go even to deny the Master who bought them. False teachers love to share things other than Christ. They like to talk about spirituality, how to improve your life. Maybe share some theories or interpretations that they have. A couple of titles of books, real books, um, that illustrate this point. One title, The Holy Spirit, Your Financial Advisor. As if that's the goal of the Holy Spirit, to make you wealthy. Another, You Can, You Will... Eight undeniable qualities of a winner. Another destiny. Step into your purpose. Now, can't contrast these things with the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the words, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. The cross and the resurrection of Christ are the only true foundation for ministry. And other things, other things, at best, they're kind of pop psychology. Not necessarily bad, but not all that helpful. And at worst, they're heretical or lead us away from Christ. Rather than proclaiming the truth of the authority of the resurrected Christ, many like to share interpretations, experiences that everyone else should follow, that you should become like me. When we first started this church, 
Uh, this was a former Lutheran church, and right up in the, in the front of the church, there was this big statue of Jesus with his arms open like this. You know, it was a nice statue, but it wasn't really fitting what we wanted to do in terms of the feel of the church. And so I took it, and I was like, I can't throw this out. It's a beautiful plastered thing of Jesus. So I went and I took and put Jesus in the closet. And then the joke started, I put Jesus in the closet. Now, of course, that was just a statue. It had no significance or meaning, but... I feel like that's how many false teachers view Christ. It's like they put him in the closet. He's there if we need him. He's there when we want him to do something for us. But he's not going to direct our life. He's not going to direct our ministry. And that's the attitude of many false teachers. So that's the first characteristic of false teachers. Second, that they advocate and participate in sexual immorality. Peter says... in this chapter, that they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. This Greek phrase likely means that they're always looking for someone to commit adultery with. Always looking for someone to ensnare. And this can kind of take two forms. On the one hand, you might have some churches or false teachers who uh, kind of proclaim this kind of sexual liberty And they kind of go against what the Bible says in that regard to say that sexual immorality is not a big deal. That homosexuality is okay. If you love each other, it doesn't matter. If you live together, have sex outside of marriage. That if your marriage doesn't fulfill you, you can just go on to someone else. And so some people kind of teach that as truth rather than the Word of God. But there's another way that that can take shape too. And that's when... Sometimes false teachers come out very harshly against those things. They'll rail against pornography or adultery or homosexuality, and then it's found out that they were doing those exact same things. If you're older, you might remember all the things that happened with the evangelist Jimmy Swaggart uh, back in the 80s. And I wasn't real familiar with the whole story. I did some research on it. But it's, a, it's quite interesting how everything went down there. Uh, Jimmy Swaggart was an enormously famous evangelist. His messages were uh, on television throughout the whole country, uh, many different countries throughout the world as well. Enormously popular person. And uh, from what I've heard of him, he tended to be very, uh, you know, kind of down the line in how he preached and, and taught the Word of God. And uh, there was a man named Marvin Gorman, and he was a pastor who had a church, I think, like 60 or 80 miles away from Jimmy Swaggart. And apparently, Jimmy Swaggart was uh, kind of jealous of him. Even though Swaggart's ministry like was so much bigger than Gorman's, he was jealous of Gorman. And uh, somehow he found out, he got knowledge that Gorman had had an affair. And Gorman, this affair that Gorman had had, it was kind of a one-time thing. He, I, I don't know if he repented of it, but I know he felt bad about it, but this was kind of a one-time thing. And Swagger came over and he confronted him about it. And then he started these rumors that Gorman had had affairs with all these different women, basically completely destroying his ministry. After that, Jim Baker... Another famous televangelist was caught uh, in sin as well. And Jimmy Swaggart went on television on CNN as he was being interviewed, and he said 
that Baker was a cancer to the body of Christ. Just a few months later, it was found that he had been seeing prostitutes. And the way that that was found was uh, apparently a private investigator, I don't know what his motivations were or how he got involved with this, but a private investigator staked out a hotel. And he had a camera in this particular room, and then he watched for Swagger to come to that hotel, and he got a picture of him with this prostitute going into this hotel room. After he got that information, he went out and slashed Swaggart's tires, and he called up none other than Marvin Gorman, the man that Swaggart had turned in. Gorman outed Swaggart, and after that, Swaggart publicly apologized in an emotional appeal that he had sinned against God, and then a few years later, he was once again found with a prostitute. That's kind of the mindset of false teachers, they either advocate sexual sin or they're involved in sexual sin or maybe even both. So that's the second characteristic of false teachers. The third is that they love money. Now, in one sense, it's perfectly right and proper that those who are pastors or in ministry should have wages for their ministry. Uh, In 1 Timothy, Paul says, "...let the the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor." especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. So there's nothing wrong for a pastor or leader of a ministry to get a salary. There's nothing in scripture that says that a pastor has to be poor and destitute. That's not a biblical thing either. Yet the goal of ministry should not be money and the accumulation of wealth. And if it is, probably most people who do that will be sorely disappointed. In the passage, Peter quotes the prophet Balaam as an example of the love of money. Balaam was a prophet in the Old Testament. And during the time frame when Balaam lived, Israel was during the conquest period. And Israel was going around kind of driving out the nations before them, before they entered into the promised land. And uh, they had just defeated two kings named Sihon and Og. And they had just kind of really whooped them. And they had kind of brought terror on that region. And so another king of that area named Balak got afraid of Israel. And he's like, they're going to come and do the same thing to us. And so he calls Balaam and says, I need you to curse these people for me. And Balaam consults of God. And God is like, no, these are my people. These people are blessed. You cannot curse them. And yet Balak was persistent. He sent a number of princes to Balaam. He says, if you do this, I'll do whatever you want. Like, name your price. There's no price that's too high. Still, Balaam said, no, I can't do that. I I don't have that authority. But apparently somewhere along the line, he decided he was going to do that. And he goes on the road to Balak to receive his reward. And apparently he was more concerned with money than with God's favor and God's blessing. Likewise, Peter says that false teachers have hearts that are trained in greed. I went to seminary for four years and uh, 
God was gracious to me in that He helped provide for me throughout that experience and throughout um, undergraduate. So uh, I had family that had helped me pay for that. And so I was able to graduate without an insane amount of student debt, uh, which is good because I was about to start a church. Um, But a lot of people that I knew in seminary, that wasn't the case. They had racked up a lot of debt in undergraduate school, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever, $1,000, and then they're going to seminary to prepare for ministry, and they're just kind of racking up the debt. But I'll tell you what nobody said in seminary. Nobody in seminary that I met that I remember, I think I probably would remember this, nobody said, you know, my goal in life is that I'm going to become a megachurch pastor, and by the age of 40, I'm going to be a millionaire. That's just not the direction that people were going. And if, if that was your goal, that's not the easiest or the best way to earn wealth. Yet some people use ministry, and, and oftentimes these people who do this, who use ministry as a platform for wealth, are people who kind of want to take shortcuts. People who are probably not qualified to even be in ministry. But they see it as an easy way to make money. And so they use either lies or half-truths to line their own pocketbooks. These are the people who promise you God's blessing and a healing if you would just send in three payments of $39.95. People who will send you a handkerchief that's blessed of God that will make all your colds go away. People who will send you end-time survival kits if you just send in a small donation. You, remember, you may remember back in May of this year, the televangelist, a televangelist named Jesse Duplantis asked his followers to fund for him another project, a private jet, because uh, apparently the three that he already had uh, weren't quite good enough. Uh, I read an article on CNN about this, and if I didn't know any better, I would think this was kind of a satirical newspaper article because it's just so outlandish, but it was true. He said this, it's one of the, it was one of the greatest statements the Lord ever told me. He said, Jesse, do you want to come up to where I'm at? I want you to bleed me, or ask for don- donations, for a Falcon 7X, which was cost up to $57 million. He said, all it's going to do is touch people. I'm going to touch, it's going to touch people, it's going to reach people, it's going to change lives one soul at a time. He says, I really believe if Jesus was physically on the earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. In his video to his followers, he shows a picture of himself standing with his three other jets. An inscription underneath that picture that says, it's not about possessions, it's about priorities. It is indeed about priorities, and the priority of ministry should never be money and increasing wealth. So that's the third characteristic of false teachers. The fourth characteristic of false teachers is that they're sacrilegious. Peter says in verse 10 that they're bold and willful. They do not blaspheme, or they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 12, Peter says that they go about blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant. 
Now, you might wonder what blaspheming the glorious ones means. And uh, honestly, I'm not really sure. Uh, I've read different commentators. They, most people that I read suggest uh, that these were fallen angels and that these false teachers kind of pronounced a judgment upon them that was reserved for God. But I'm not completely sure about that. But regardless, in short, these people were irreverent. They don't have a healthy fear or a healthy reverence for God. Leo Eklov talks about the fear of the Lord, and he says, I used to think that living in the fear of the Lord is like driving down the street while watching the policeman in your rearview mirror. But actually, there's a better picture for the fear of the Lord. It's like a teenage driver who suddenly spots her father's car in her rearview mirror. Seeing him back there puts her on notice to be on her best behavior, to use her blinkers and stop at the yellow light, and to keep both hands on the wheel. But it also tells her that her father cares enough to follow her. It tells her that she's safe. Her father isn't trying to trap or trick her. He's trying to help her develop good habits. Not just to be careful on this trip, but to obey the laws and stay safe until she gets home. She's driving on her own, but not completely on her own. He says, so it is for the people of God. The fear of the Lord means we live life with our Heavenly Father always in our rearview mirror. We glance up and see His brilliant holiness, but also His care and love. Our response, the fear of the Lord, is a mix of reverence, trust, and love. False teachers don't have that kind of fear. They don't have that kind of reverence, that kind of respect for God. They just spew out things, whether they're true or not. Whether they're offensive to God or not offensive to God. It's contrasted with what Isaiah in verse 66 says, uh, speaking for God, says about the one that he looks to. Thus says the Lord, it says in Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He says, but this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my, at my word. True followers of Jesus have a healthy respect, and healthy awe, and healthy fear of God. So that's the fourth characteristic of false teachers. The fifth is that they end badly. Peter says, for if they speak, speaking of these false teachers, if they, after having escaped the defilement of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse than the first. Now, when we read this on the surface, we may uh, ask ourselves the question is this saying that we can lose our salvation? And on the surface, that's what it seems. And if this was the only text that we had, we might think that or be driven to that conclusion. But based upon the other things we see in Scripture, uh, we know that that's not the case. Specifically what Peter says in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5, to 5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter says that it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven 
for you. So I don't think he's saying that we can lose our salvation. So what is he saying then? These false teachers put on the outward appearance of Christianity. They play the part. They clean up in some manner. They change their behavior in some way, but their hearts aren't changed. And over the course of time, we see their true nature. You know, you can just watch a person's ministry over time and you kind of can see, whether it's a ministry or even a person, anybody, you can see their true fruit over the course of their life. So why does Peter say that it would have been better if they didn't know the truth or didn't come to the truth? The first reason it would be better is because the fact that they know the truth means that they're even more accountable before God. And so they're going to reap a harsher judgment because of that. Also, if they know the truth, they're less likely to actually turn back to it. If they... Think in their mind, I, I've tried that, I've done that, it, isn't, it didn't work for me. They're unlikely to turn back to that truth. And so it's worse that they knew the truth at all than that they would know it and then turn away from it and reject it. So these are the characteristics that Peter gives us for false teachers. They focus on things other than Jesus. They advocate and participate in sexual immorality. They love money. They're sacrilegious. They end badly. Earlier this year, the Wall Street Journal uh, wrote an article about how fake news stories can really have a powerful impact on people in changing their uh, feelings and opinions upon things. And uh, they quoted a woman named Randy Romo. And she was a photographer who had taken a picture, I think it was about 11 years ago, and it was at a pro-immigration rally. And it said something like, uh, no human is illegal, or something like that. But what happened was, uh, these Russian hackers made up these fake Facebook and, other, and you know, different types of accounts. And they took that picture from Romo, and the sign that the person was holding... And they changed it to kind of a derogatory statement towards immigrants. Miss Romo had a powerful message and a warning that we could take to heart. She said, we're living in the greatest era, era of information access. People will watch cat videos endlessly, but they won't take a minute to ascertain whether what they are being told is true or not. Let's not make that same mistake as believers. Not everything that we hear, that we read, is true. And we need to compare what we see, what we hear, what we read to the Word of God and see if it's in line with the Word of God. And these things are warnings and they're characteristics of false teachers, but they're also things that we need to be wary not to buy into. We need to be wary not to focus on things other than Jesus. We need to be wary not to advocate or participate in sexual immorality. We need to keep ourselves from the love of money. We need to keep ourselves from being sacrilegious, to have a healthy respect and fear and awe of God. And also we need to end well. A person who doesn't continue in the faith is not a believer. You know, sometimes people have, have thought, you know, this teaching that 
a person can't lose their salvation, what they, some people think that means is that if you pray a prayer when you're five years old, that means that you're saved and it doesn't matter what you do after that. Well, that's not the teaching of the Scripture. Yes, our salvation is secure, but we also need to persevere. God's the one who makes us persevere. He gives us the strength to persevere. But what we do does matter. And we did keep trusting in Christ throughout our lives. So let's not make the mistake that the false teachers made. Let's not make the mistake of just believing whatever we hear or read. Let's compare it with the Word of God. I'd like to close by reading a passage from 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have life. Lord, we pray that we would hold on to that as we have so much information in our world, so much good information, so many different ways that we can grow in our faith today. Lord, I pray that we would compare everything that we hear, see, and read with your word. And that we would be on the watch, knowing that there are false prophets out there, false teachers, people who are wolves in sheep's clothing, people who just want to swindle us and lead us away from you. Lord, help us to be wary of them. Help us to be wise as serpents, as you say in your word. Lord, we also pray that you would keep us from these things. Keep us from the love of money. Keep us from sexual immorality. Keep us from focusing on anything other than you, Lord. We know that if we're focused on you, everything else will fall into place. Lord, through your Holy Spirit, change us. Give us grace. Give us your peace. And help us to follow you with all that we have. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.